Welcome to Avatar with Academics. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I have never watched Avatar The Last Airbender. And I'm Annie Berglund, and I have watched it before. Annie, we have made it to Book 3 Fire, Chapter 2, The Headband. This is a very anticipated episode for me. I'm I'm super excited to talk about this. Yeah, we watched it a couple weeks ago, and just because of scheduling, we haven't been able to record yet. So I feel like I've been sitting on this episode and really ruminating over it. Um, it, it could definitely also be titled Footloose. Yes, yes. Footloose <laughs> <What>? too. <laughs> yeah, there's there's actually multiple like directions you can go for like 80s 90s references in this now we need to say at the top who wrote this episode um is it our boy it is this is a john o'brien episode so um and i i'm trying to remember one of our guests i'm trying to remember who said that this was one of this was their favorite episode oh um but i don't at the top of my head i don't remember who said that but i remember i remember hearing the title the headband and some and being like oh that's one i'm i'm excited for yeah um is this is this an episode that stands out to you when you're thinking about uh about avatar now i will say it's it's not one that necessarily pushes the, oh it does push the plot forward quite uh in, in 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 a number of ways this isn't just a wheel spinning episode um but i feel like it's a very it reveals some stuff about where we're headed um in in this season so yeah when i think back on watching this the first time around this is one of those episodes that felt a little bit like a filler to me um watching it again i'm like no there's like especially with zuko there's some movement forward um but it's just really funny it's just a really funny episode like of course it's john o'brien right right and we'll and we'll get into it but but i'm gonna make the argument as we go through here and if i don't make it during our summary i'll make it at the end that i really do think that this is an episode without a uh Oh, no, it actually does have an express mission statement thing uh, for going forward. I think this is a really important episode for thinking about the trajectory of the rest of this season. Um, mm. Not just for Zuko. I, I forget about the Zuko plotline. I'm talking about the Aang plotline. I think this this has uh, a pretty important, what I assume is going to be an important mission going forward. But we'll uh, we'll see about that. Awesome. I think I can see some of those potential themes too. So I'm excited to talk about it. All right. Let's let's jump right in. All right. So we open with a shot of a mountain trail up the side of this tall volcano. We are in the Fire Nation territory this whole episode. Um, And so from above, the volcano is kind of hollowed out. And inside of it, we see what we realize is Fire Lord Ozai's palace and the surrounding kingdom within this these fortress walls that are like natural fortress walls of a volcano and yeah go ahead oh it's interesting i mean i realized we're one line into this and i'm already (laughs) stopping you but what's interesting about this is that this episode we're going to see um we've already kind of seen the fire lord's palace we've seen that world a little bit but we're also going to see the the outside world of the fire, the fire nation. And I think that's one of the, going to be one of the themes of this episode is that the fire nation is not a monolith necessarily, Mm. but there are lots of different people with lots of different um, experiences. And, and there is something about this palace feeling kind of closed off from the rest of the world. Yeah. Literally like physically separate from its surroundings. Uh, and I think that that is one of those themes of the first half of the season. 
um, of season three is it's you are you are thrown into the Fire Nation, um, similar to when we were thrown into the Earth Kingdom and trying to figure out how they all connect and you know are these cities different from one another? Uh, how much are they a part of one unity or one um, like unite uh, united front or not? Are they individual entities um, and how do they interact with the other kingdoms around them? Yeah, well, well really- it's, it, and it's mm-hmm. interesting because if you think about the experiences we've had with the fire nation up to this point have been experiences with their military yes, and their occupying forces and their colonies, right? Which, which all point in one to one particular read of the fire nation, but you real. So, I mean, I was almost prepared uh, if this were a simpler, if this were a simpler narrative, a simpler show, a lesser show, the fire nation would just be a military state and you wouldn't get a sense of anybody else. Um, But this was, this tips us to say like, actually we're going to see some other people. And I, and I, I really like that because you think about how does any imperializing country look to the world around it, especially if it's militarily imperializing, right? You're going to see it through the lens of that military Vanguard out there. Yes, it, and it makes me think and reflect on season two as well, where we we hear about Bossing Say the whole time as this stronghold of freedom, uh, and potentially even like equality. And then we get there, and it feels like a military state. And now we are in what we know to be this imperial power, uh, this like hegemonic state in the Avatar world. And yet, you're right; like there is so much more nuance, and we even see the fact that the imperial state itself is harmful to its own occupants, like to its own people. Um, It's also super interesting because when we talked to our interviewees, especially um, throughout season two, we always asked, you know, what, (laughs) what culture would you most want to explore? And you and I were both very on board with exploring the fire nation um, because the only glimpse that we had of it was the fire festival, um, Obviously, the the Avatar Fire Festival, not like any other types of fire festivals, but um, where there's like hot, spicy food, there's these costumes, there's this music, and um, it's it's really interesting and kind of almost warm and inviting where you wouldn't necessarily think so from this imperial power. And now we get to like join in it and live a day of the life of a student going through uh, a Fire Nation Academy. So it's really exciting. And now I realize I'm getting ahead of myself. We both are. (laughs) Should we keep going? Back to the palace. Okay. So back to the palace. Um, We we get to Zuko's bedroom and he is lying awake in bed and he's kind of just like twisting and turning, clearly unable to sleep. Uh, but he abruptly sits up and he leaves his bed uh, after what we can assume was a restless night. And he puts on a hooded cloak and scales this volcano and leaves the city limits and approaches this prison outside of probably outside of the volcano. Um and as he approaches this large prison, a Fire Nation guard stands a watch uh, on the second story above and sees a figure approaching and questions this figure, this hooded figure, um, and says, who's there? And Zuko quickly turns around to leave. Um, so he's approaching this prison and then, and then realizes he was almost caught. Uh, it had some Blue Spirit vibes, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah, because there is this sense of like him moving in secret. But it's interesting because he's not doing this Blue Spirit style. Blue Spirit could get into that prison without being seen if he wanted. 
but he's not right. doing that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so then we get to morning time and now we are above an expansive kind of ocean shot and there's a bunch of different small islands throughout the ocean. Uh, and they're characterized by volca uh, volcanoes, so little volcanic islands. And we see this small, singular, puffy cloud kind of moving quickly, unnaturally so, above these mountains. And from within the cloud, we hear Aang's voice say, I think I see a cave below. And Sokka quickly hushes him. And we realize that this cloud is Appa. He's covered with, um, I'm assuming there's kind of some water and air bending that's allowing for this to happen. Um, but Appa is covered in this cloud. He comes towards that cave that Aang had spot. And um, it seems like Appa is the one that air bends the cloud covering away. He kind of does like a sneeze motion or something and all of it flies off and he's able to then land with the Aang gang aboard him um, on this little uh, volcanic kind of island where there's a, a secretive cave. And Sokka dismounts and he's still in his Fire Nation clothes and he says, great job with the cloud camel, but next time let's disguise ourselves as the kind of cloud who knows how to keep its mouth shut. So and I like this. Yeah, I like this out of Sokka because we're seeing um, Sokka, the role he's playing now in terms of like, uh, he's trying, we've, we get to hear, by the time we get to season three, it feels like we're hearing echoes of things in the past. And this is Sokka as like, trying to be the leader again, but in a different kind of way, like he's, he's, you know, we're going to hear him express things about like, okay, the plan and we have to stay on this. And, and, and people are sort of pushing against Sokka trying to keep on a straight line. So I, um, I like, I, I find interesting the version of Sokka we get here. Yeah, for sure. He reminds me of like the nineties movie road trip dad. That's like, I need, That's to perfect. Be, I need to be making sure we are on schedule. We only have a couple potty breaks. We have to keep going. We have a mission to accomplish. And that is getting to our end, uh, our, our, uh, from point A to point B. So Sokka feels like road trip dad this episode for sure. Which is like, they need it. <laughs> they need somebody to do that. Um, so Toph sarcastically notes really that the only audience around them is birds. So they don't really need to worry about people overhearing them. Uh, but Saga doubles down and says, we are in enemy territory. Those are enemy birds. And he gestures towards these like cute little harmless toucan puffins that are sitting above him, just kind of squawking um, peace peacefully. And I have to say, I feel myself increasingly writing this in the notes about Saga because like they make jokes about Saga and his like how overly concerned or paranoid he is. But like, I just want to keep writing the note. He's not wrong. Like yeah. they really do need to be careful. Like, you know, he somehow he's the butt of these jokes and they like to all take shots at him, but like, he's not wrong. They really, really need to be careful. Yeah. So remember, um, man, in season two, kind of midway through when he falls into that kind of crack, that like cavernous crack and he's stuck there and he sees that cute little hybrid moose and he's like, oh, you're sweet. And then it comes back to bite him later because it has this terrifying mom. Like <laughs> Zuko knows not to trust even the nature around him or sorry, Sokka knows not to trust even the nature around him. So I think the gang should be on board. Like this guy has been burned so many times right. throughout these seasons. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. So um, the gang continues walking towards the cave and Sokka begins demonstrating what I called his spy skills, which is like him cartwheeling over things and dodging like literally nothing in front of him, but just trying to 
play like he is hiding from someone out there. I'm always a fan of of a situation where everybody else is acting normal and one person's like SEAL Team Six. I like I just I love the visual of that. It's like you know that only works if everybody's doing it. <laughs> Yeah, right. It was like a little slapsticky and I loved it. So then they come to the cave, they enter it, and Sokka announces that they've been moving from cave to cave, right? He's like, okay, we're at another cave and we're just going to keep going from secret cave to secret cave until we get to Fire Lord Ozai, right? And he feels a little bit... Um, frustrated by the fact that they are just hiding when he is living among some powerful benders, right? So it probably feels a little bit stupid to be hiding yourselves. Um, and Katara and Aang decide that, okay, if we are going to keep doing this, we need to come up with some better Fire Nation disguises um, so that we can integrate better with with the people around us, uh, that we don't need to hide as ex- intensely as we have been. And what's and great also- about that is this this leads us to what we were talking about, which is this opens the door up to say, okay, so season three is not going to be in caves. Season three is going to be blending in. Yes, exactly. Understanding the culture that you've hated your whole life, like the culture that you've been taught to fear uh, and to um, bemoan, like this is, these are the people that you have to befriend and trust. Um, so Toph says, uh, plus they have real food out there. So she's very excited to get some actual food. And she gestures to the cave hoppers um, that are like little locusts jumping through the cave. Um, and she's like, this is our only food source. I would love to not continue to eat cave hoppers. And then we see Momo happily snack on them. So we kind of get a glimpse of like what the last week or so has been like with the gang. So outside the cave, they discover this nearby home with lines of clothes hanging out to dry. And it's really the only home nearby. And Aang looks at it from behind this <laughs> big rock. And he's kind of hesitant about stealing clothes. But uh, surprisingly, Katara laughs and kind of like lunges at the clothes with excitement and says, I call the silk road like robe like she is all on board with stealing <laughs> stealing clothes and ang says well you know if it's essential for our survival i call the suit and so we get this kind of cute montage of the friends running through kind of different angles of them grabbing clothes off the clothesline while uh, the man who owns the home is sleeping in his doorway unaware and this is Uh, this is one of those great tropes for movies of like Whenever somebody come, go, shows up someplace or needs to steal clothes or they break into a house and they, they always find clothes that fit them perfectly. Yes. And there's always that one person that's like, I don't know, this is unethical, but they do it anyway. Right. Like, <laughs> like someone necessarily has to say that and then they can finally just go uh, with no inhibition. So um, the gang then comes back and they're kind of assessing what they got from these clotheslines. So Aang has a headband, which is where we get the name of this episode, um, and it covers his arrow peeking out from his hair. So it allows him to obscure himself while he's out and about, uh, which I think is a really important part. I, I spent a little bit of time questioning why this episode was called the headband and not just Footloose or Dancing Party or whatever you could have called it. Um, so it's interesting that they choose this article of clothing, the idea that perhaps this season is Aang hiding his identity and um, that it won't be revealed until the end uh, is one way that I took it, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that, Sam? Yeah, I, well, we're going to see that the the headband is going to, by the end of this, 
is going to point to actually a number of things um, because we're going to find out what that headband actually is a little bit later. And the headband becomes like a major plot point uh, in a, a great scene at the end. So I have some headband yes. thought. I have some headband thoughts coming up in a little bit. So good. I'm happy to hear it. So, um, Aang puts on his headband. Um, the gang kind of puts on their accessories. Toph has some shoes and she's like, well, I can't really use these as a blind earthbender. So she kicks out the soles of them so that it looks like she's wearing shoes, but she's walking on bare feet, which I thought was very ingenious. Yeah, I loved that. <laughs> I was like, oh, that that's very practical of you. Um, and then Katara steps toward the crew and she asks how she looks. And we get another one of those Aang vision shots where it's like, bam, chicka, wow. And he's looking at <laughs> Katara with like, just the the love of this first crush he's had and the camera kind of pans up to see her outfit and there's like some midriff showing and her hair is down and she looks really pretty and ang is like clearly his cheeks are flushing and he's smitten um but he notices her mother's necklace and says like this is a giveaway you'll probably have to hide your mom's necklace um and so katara feels a little upset by that but that brings us to the next scene when the crew is finally able to enter into town and do a little bit of accessory shopping and still feel like they're hiding from the people around them. So Katara takes off her mom's necklace and she buys this red choker and Toph buys a crown or like a headband kind of thing to secure her top bun. And then um, Aang stuffs Momo inside his long vest. So all of the, the costuming is complete. Now, it's so interesting that, like, Appa obviously is not with them. Appa stays, <laughs> stays back at the cave. But Aang always brings Momo with him. And it seems like, I mean, for one thing, because it's an animated show, they can get away with, like, Momo is somehow this fairly <laughs> big bat lemur that just, like, is just in his shirt. Yes. Um, but it's like it's like they do this a lot. And it, and, and it seems like a big risk, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, presumably a bat lemur is not a common animal. So this draws attention. And the one thing they don't want to do is draw attention. But what I'm wondering is, are we going to see this at some point, that big risk being a big reward as well? It's like, Oh, if they hadn't brought Momo, this would happen. I will say in this episode, I don't think it becomes a major plot point, but it is interesting that they keep doing it. They're seeding this fact that Aang doesn't really part with Momo. Plus we've heard Roku if you remember very early on talk about or no boomy talked specifically yeah. about about momo so i just it's interesting that he's sometimes goes on these missions where it's like that seems like a like a weird risk to take yes i almost want somebody to go through all of the episodes see when something like this happens and see if it's a good thing or a bad thing that momo's there just kind of like graph out whether it was successful or helpful or it wasn't um yeah i really do think that momo is an emotional support animal (laughs) that's why that's why he's always around um so ang says to the crew he's he's kind of trying to give them a little bit of like a history lesson on what it's like to live in a fire nation Um, city and so he says i used to visit my friend kuzan here a hundred years ago so everyone just follow my lead and stay cool or as they say in the fire nation stay flaming one of my favorite things in this episode is the slang like (laughs) that ang knows fire nation slang now one of the things that interested me is we've been introduced before to old friends of ang's like boomy was an old friend of ang's 
So like I I just have in the back of my head like are we gonna? Mm. I mean, it would be weird if Kuzan was also alive, you know. <laughs> but who knows? Um, but it is it, it is just this nice reminder that Aang uh, was living at a time before this war where he had friends in the Fire Nation, and he and that mm. would just be a place that you would visit. And I also just wonder: Are we going to? Um, learn more about Aang's Fire Nation friend at some point yeah. this season. Is there going to be other Kuzan flashbacks? It's also interesting to think about uh, even just the scope of history and to say like this is a hundred years and, and in this episode I think there's really interesting discussions of trying to free yourself from the constraints around you, trying to uh, he talks quite a bit about living a more free life but at the same time he, his version of freedom isn't trying to break with tradition, but instead actually embraces the traditions of the community. And so it's interesting to think about how a hundred years really isn't that long. And um, if we're thinking about even 20th century, uh, like Western imperialism, uh, a lot of what we learn about in Western Civ is not that long ago. Um, to, so to even think that, somebody could have been alive and at least experienced parts of that and remembered some of those um, moments of unity and then moments of division. And like, that's what Aang is living himself clearly as a 112 year old. So it's different, but <laughs> uh, interesting to think about kind of as the background of this episode. Um, so Aang turns the corner of the alley and he kind of walks with swagger because he's like, I know what I'm doing here. And he walks to this nearby man who's just eating a, a piece of meat on a stick. And Aang says, greetings, my good Hotman. And the man's like, hey. And he looks really confused. And he's like, greetings. <laughs> and I, so I love the fact that Aang has this Fire Nation experience, that he knows this slang. But it's antiquated. Yes. right? Like He keeps using it. And whenever he does, people look at him like, what and it's in it's and we imagine like imagine right now if somebody came up and started to talk with you with like 1921 slang yes. american slang it yes. would be like who is this person sam um, that's what we did when i taught middle school social studies we had a unit on 1920s slang terms and we made our students say like the bee's knees and try to like talk in 1920s and it felt so bizarre and that's what ang is trying to do here it's excellent yeah i love 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 it <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so the gang approaches this restaurant, and according to the signs out front, it just has meat, meatballs, and fish cakes on sticks. And so Aang is disappointed, but Sokka points out that, you know, everything here, ev everyone here eats the meat, even the meat eats the meat. And then he gestures to a nearby hippo cow who's like out devouring this fly infested meat um, outside of the city. And Aang's like, you guys go ahead. I'll just get some lettuce out of the garbage. <laughs> that felt so relatable to me as, as a vegetarian to be like, oh, it's okay. I'll just munch on this, like, clearly decorative piece on the side of this plate while you guys eat the main meal. <laughs> um, excellent writing by the Avatar folks. So the crew walk inside of the restaurant and we see Aang stand outside, continuing to wave at every single passerby saying, Hotman, Hotman, hello, Hotman, and um, being received with nothing. I have to say, I have started to do this around my house. <laughs> Whenever my daughter walks into the room, I'll just go, Hotman, Hotman, Hotman. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> yes, and then it's just, it falls on deaf ears. No one cares. No one's listening. Or he gets confusion. It's excellent. 
So um, suddenly, though, as he's standing outside the restaurant, there are these three large menacing Fire Nation guards that approach him and say, like, hey, we've caught you. We know who you are. Um, they're like, it couldn't be more obvious that you don't belong here. And so Aang becomes anxious. He gets these huge kind of anime pouted eye, pouting eyes. Um, but the guards explain that, you know, oh, it's obvious that you are playing hooky and you're clearly wearing your school uniform. We need to get you back into the school building. Um, so they don't know that he's the Avatar, but they do think he's an average 12-year-old Fire Nation boy. And so the next scene, we see the same guards toss Aang into a classroom full of Fire Nation children about his age, 12, 13 years old. And the class stares at him wide-eyed. Clearly, he has interrupted a class lesson. And there's a teacher who is just a jerk. (laughs) She's just terrible, this whole episode. (laughs) Stern and unemotional from the beginning. And her arms are crossed, and she asks if this is a new mind for molding. And Aang smiles, looks at the guards, kind of rolls with it, and he's like, yeah, let the the molding begin. And he's just accepting this new role as being a Fire Nation student. And the teacher stops him and says, you know, you're clearly not Fire Nation. You must be from the colonies, which is another interesting part of this episode, right, Sam? Yeah, I, I, in, in, in this, I, I just wonder how much of a runner this is going to be throughout the season that we even so that we see this social division between like uh, Fire Nation people who are colonials who are coming back, and that that is clearly they are less civilized than the native Fire Nation. I, I, I was trying to think like, what would you call the people who weren't from the colonies? You know. Yeah. See, me. Yes, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, there is this definite this sense of like colonials, at least in this situation, are like less legitimate Fire Nation people than yeah. than the people who are actually from live in the Fire Nation in that way. Right, which is yeah, it's just really interesting when you think about man, even just um, chatting with people who are immigrants or from immigrant communities and and saying like, I don't know, sometimes I don't feel like I belong in either side or sometimes I feel like no matter uh, where I am uh, in the place I was born or in the place I currently live, I feel like I'm an outsider no matter what. Right. Um, Especially refugees, right? That they, that they feel nationless because sometimes their own nation doesn't exist anymore as a political entity. And they're in a refugee camp, which is, almost literally no place right mm-hmm. and then they come to a you know they come to the u.s from somewhere else and it's like i'm not from here the place i'm my home doesn't exist anymore and i've spent most of my life sometimes in this camp which is again like this sort of boundary thing that's not technically yeah. anywhere yeah no i I, th- I thought about that a lot right that no matter where you are you are always perceived as other um, and that has damaging effects for a young person growing up. Um, it's also interesting to think like, I had so many questions about the colonies and the idea of the colonies, like why are they looked so down upon? Perhaps it's because maybe there's some kind of assimilation between Fire Nation folks and like say Earth Kingdom people living in the same community. Maybe they start adopting each other's cultures or even things like intermarriage and um, these big uh cultural kind of shifts um, that that perhaps folks living in the mainland or whatever you want to call it uh, would look down upon. But also even ideas of like, 
the people who are sent out to colonies, maybe, um, like maybe they were imprisoned or they were, you know, like there's so many less desirable how, in some way. Yeah. Yes. So many questions about how fire nation folks end up in uh, non fire nation communities or places where there, there has been colonialization and well, uh, well and let's not, yeah. And let's not forget. I mean, there is the fire nation, the fire, uh, I should say the, the fire nation army Navy is often depicted in totalitarian, even like Nazi, um iconography you know so so the language of like purity is is not something that we should that you know that we should uh it, that is something we should pay attention to and there there maybe is this sense that yeah like i really do think that the colony folks either culturally or even biologically intermixing you know that that might be the kind of thing that that is is forbidden because we do see um you know at certain moments we see this depiction of of uh love between people from different nations right i mean whether it's katara and haru whether it's ang and katara whether it's uh katara and jet i mean like like we're seeing different things where it's like or katara and zuko for that matter it's like yeah we don't i don't think we've actually seen um uh different nations intermix in a relationship yet have we um, no, not beyond just kind of the initial attraction or yeah, like, yeah. So I don't know how like how forbidden that is in this world, and if it's different in different kingdoms. I can imagine the Fire Nation uh, frowns upon that. That seems like their kind of thing. Yeah, it makes me want to like zoom forward, maybe even watch. I haven't seen Legend of Korra yet, but just to see if that's part of it that that maybe becomes um, an important part of the plot of, of future avatar like worlds or right. TV series. Um, so the, the teacher accuses, I guess, uh, Aang of being from the colonies and um, she criticizes his etiquette, basically saying, um, you know, you clearly are from the colonies because you're not addressing me as an elder. Um, and that was interesting because Aang is technically her elder. So like um, Aang, I feel like would be someone who would be very, uh, conscious of the division between elders and and those who are younger it just seems like especially in a community of monks like that kind of filial piety is really important um so <laughs> i felt bad for ang having been kind of chastised in that way since per like in actuality he is older um and she also chastises him for wearing head coverings indoors and Aang bows down during this, uh, realizing, you know, I need to bow to my so-called elder. And a girl nearby him gets his attention and she kind of corrects his posture. And she discreetly shows him how his hands should be formed in order to correctly bow to her. And so Aang smiles and, and changes uh, based on what that girl was indicating. And then he cleverly addresses the teacher and says you know what, I can't take off my head covering. I have this really embarrassing scar and I would just rather keep it hidden from view. Um, and so the teacher allows it and she asks him what his name is. And she says, or should we just call you mannerless colony slob? And <laughs> rude. Uh, and Aang laughs and he says, um, no, uh, you can call me Kuzan. So he adopts that name of his friend who had been from a similar area. Okay, here's where I want to talk about the headband. Um, okay. Because uh, I want to give credit to my daughter was the first 
person in my group who pointed out that when he wears this headband, he wears it upside down so that the symbol on the headband, you see it all over. In fact, when they first come into that classroom, you see that triangular symbol and it is shaped like a pyramid with the base at the bottom. But Aang wears it the other way. I had no which idea. Is, which is really interesting. And then, do you know what the headband is? Oh, they said it was something else, right? Like it wasn't being, like he was using it for a headband, but it's for a different purpose. Is that right? Yeah. So, okay. So if you look at this episode, now this is because I had a chance to watch this a couple of times. If you look okay. at the episode, every student there has a headband. It's just, okay. they're not wearing it as a headband because it's not a headband. It is the belt to the school uniform. Everyone has this sash around their waist. If you look at Aang, he's not wearing a sash. So when he stole that uniform, he saw the belt and was like, Oh, he didn't see it as a belt. He saw it as a headband, ah. which explains why later everyone has a headband because everybody oh. has their school uniform. Now, here is where um, I this made me think of something from uh, bef- right around the time you were born. OK, have you ever seen the the Will Smith um, uh, sitcom, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Yeah, yeah. I've okay. seen episodes here and there. Okay, the fir- in the first season. So this is much like Aang in in this in this um, uh, in this episode, right? Aang or Kuzan is a definitely a fish out of water, right? He's in this place which seems like a higher class place. He's maybe he's looked at as coming from a lower class place, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is the the setup for the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. He's from Philadelphia, and he has. To- come and live with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. And there are these wealthy people. And he goes to this wealthy prep school that has school uniforms. And Will is always pushing back, especially in like, I think this is the first episode pushing back at like the strictures of that society, that school particularly. And one of the things that he does is they have a school uniform and he doesn't like, he doesn't want to wear the school uniform, but he realizes it only says that you have to, wear the uniform it doesn't say how you have to wear it so it's like a jacket and tie so one of the things he does is he takes the jacket which has like this paisley liner and he puts it inside out so he's like i'm wearing the jacket but i look different and he takes the necktie and wears it as a headband and i was like Uh -uh. oh that's fresh prince of bel-air and wearing Uh wearing the belt so it is this like this sort of symbol of rebellion of like yes i am wearing the uniform but I am not wearing the. But I'm not wearing it the way you want me to wear it. But I'm wearing all the pieces of it. I love that, and I also love that it was so. For Aang, it was so unintentional, and yet every single instance of him in this community is him pushing the envelope and being uh, counter. Yeah, countercultural. So like even the fact that he's outside wearing this on his head, and the guards say like, "Oh, you clearly are playing hooky." Like. They are always assuming that he is doing something wrong because he doesn't fit the mold of a Fire Nation person. Oh, okay. I'll add, I'll add to it this, right? Let's go back to one of one of Aang's other childhood friends, right? What does Boomy tell him? Like, you have to start to see the world in a different way. That is the message that he is bringing to these folks, like, right? You see a belt. I see a headband. Yeah. Oh, I love this. <laughs> it makes me so... And it's not... And I think... It, it it matches that idea that it's not tossing it out. Like it's not saying we don't need this at all, but it's saying what's a different way we can use it or what's like, how can we integrate this in a way that makes more sense for us living, uh, you know, now versus people who came before us. Um, so it's not, it's not trying to be counter to culture, but um, shifting based on what the, the needs are of the time that they live in. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, this makes me so happy. I really love this. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to Kevin Bacon yet. I know. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, so um, <laughs> he is not going to be going by Mannerless Colony Slob. Instead, he will be called Kuzan. And a bell in the courtyard begins to ring, and we realize class has been dismissed for the day. So Aang walks out with the kids, and um, he opens the top of his vest a bit to just talk to Momo inside. So Momo has been in his vest this whole time. And he's like, we survived. And it was pretty fun. Like, of course, Aang would find this to be fun and not terrifying in every way. And um, that kind female classmate from earlier sees Aang, and she tells him, um, smiling hugely at him, to keep the monkey away from the headmaster. And Aang realizes he's been caught. And so he he gets nervous. But um, the kind girl continues and says, my name is Anji. I really like your headband, by the way. And um, then a man who I wrote looks like he is 35 <laughs> pushes past Aang and tells her not to babysit the new kid. So he's talking to Anji um, and very possessive of her and antagonistic towards Aang right away. And he wraps his arm around her shoulder, and um, Aang is impressed by this literal adult male classmate, like this man-child. Let's just say he's had his growth spurt. (laughs) He looks middle-aged, Sam. I'm so... It's hilarious that they did that. Um, He looks like one of those actors that's, like, hired to play a high schooler, but clearly isn't a high schooler. Um, and so Aang bows and says, wow, you must be one of those popular kids that I've been hearing so much about. And the popular kid says, yeah, like, yeah, that's right. That's me. And he's like, look, I know you're from the colonies. So I'm going to say this slowly. Anji is my girlfriend. Don't forget it. I love, I love this because, because one of the themes we're going to talk about here is eighties movies. And like he strides in like a William Zabka, you know, Johnny, uh, Johnny Lawrence kind of thing from karate kid. Like it's, <laughs> it's great. And I love the line. You must be one of those popular kids I've been hearing about. I, thank you, John O'Brien. That's a great line. It's very funny. <laughs> it's so good. Also, I looked at avatar wiki on just some of the, um, notes and insights on the episode and somebody had written Anji never once stated that he was her boyfriend in fact she was never seen smiling while he was with her so he's just this stereotypical mean 80s 90s boyfriend has no character beyond just being a jerk <laughs> that's that's all he functions as um, so the couple walk away and uh, Aang is kind of left confused by the interaction. And a nearby student runs up to him and says, wow, I'm so amazed that um, Anji's boyfriend didn't beat you up. And the student asks if Kuzan or Aang would like to join them for a game of hide and explode. And that sounds exactly like the thing that Aang would want to do. So he's all in, uh, joins them for a after school pickup game of hide and explode we don't actually get to see what that looks like but i really wish we did i know i just i I can only imagine because what i'm wondering um is i don't think in this episode we see any fire bending do we yeah no i don't think we do because i partially i assume that the firebenders are identified early on and recruited into like military academies right like so i'm assuming they don't have that these are these are not the firebenders. These are just people in the fire nation. But yeah, I, so which makes me want to know, hide and explode. Like 
I kind of love that we don't see it because it's so much fun to imagine it. Yes, exactly. Um, so then at night, Aang returns after playing with his friends after school. And he goes to the cave and he's met with a Katara who is worried sick over him. Um, very much adopting a motherly role. And she's immediately on his case. And Aang is like, ah, I just I was invited to play with some kids after school. So I, I just did that. And Sokka turns around and freaks out at Aang saying, after what? And Aang's like, oh yeah, I enrolled in a Fire Nation school, as if it's not that big of a deal. And Sokka faints. Uh, so then we go back to the prison and uh, it's the next night, presumably, and Zuko is walking down a corridor with that same hooded cloak, um, the hood drawn over his face to conceal his scar. And the same guard tries to stop him again but is surprised when Zuko looks up and reveals his scar to the guard. And Zuko grabs the guard by the collar um, and pushes him against the wall and says, like, basically, I was never here. Uh, don't, I'm going to go into this prison regardless of if you want me to or not, and no one's going to know about it. And we see this aerial shot of a cell, and it's just a bed. It's nearly completely dark. And we finally get in season three our first glimpse of Iroh. Is that right? I don't know that we've seen it. It is, yes. Um, and Iroh is sitting hunched over and cross-legged on this bed uh, in this tiny prison cell. And we see a close-up of his face and there's no expression. He's looking pretty ragged. His hair is down. It's dirty, uh, clearly unkept uh, and flat against his face. And his eyes are quite heavy. It looks like kind of all the spirit of Iroh has left him. And Zuko comes up to the bars and tosses his hood back and says, Uncle, it's me, reveals himself to Iroh. And Iroh, instead of turning to look at him, doesn't even do that, but instead shifts his body so that it faces the wall away from Zuko, um, literally turning his back on his on his nephew. I, how excited were you to see Iroh to just be like, great, we're going here. But yes. then when you see Iroh, it's like, this is the... This is the lowest we've seen him and we don't hear his voice. And I was so curious because I know that the voice actor who plays Irope died between season two and three. So we have a new voice actor and we go through this whole episode and it's like, I don't get to hear his voice yet. I'm just like, I don't know what season three Iroh sounds like. And I just want it to be the same guy. And I know it's not. And I, I don't know. Does he do a great job of approximating it? So you can't tell like, it, it just sort of hangs there, him not talking. But I'm so glad that we finally are getting to this because uh, Iroh is one of the storylines I'm most excited of, of thinking about in this season. Yeah, and I felt like it could go so many different places. Um, yeah, it, one of the notes on Avatar Wiki was that this is the only episode we have with Iroh where he doesn't utter a single word. Um, and that choice for him and Zuko is so I think so important given that Iroh was so quick to always have advice for his nephew and this time when his nephew actually comes to him seeking advice Iroh is unwilling to give it um, and I don't blame him <laughs> I don't blame him for a second yeah and it, it makes me wonder like what is the trajectory going forward is Iroh I mean there is a, ca a chasm between them at this point and like mm what will bridge that if anything will bridge that i mean it also and we've talked we've talked about this but like 
I assume there's a prison break episode at some point, and I just can't wait to see. Like, there are so many potential people who could free Iroh. It could be the Ang Gang. It could be the White Lotus. It could be Zuko. It could, like, I'm just I'm excited for whenever the the uh, what I think is inevitable prison break episode happens, or it could be Iroh frees himself too. Because mm-hmm. it could be the kind of thing where Iroh is only captured because he's allowing himself to be captured. Which seems so Iroh now that you say it. <laughs> like he's always ahead of everything that's happening and he's just biding his time. That seems like an Iroh thing to do. But yeah, I know. I wish it was like the end of this episode. We had the resolution, but we have to stick with this for a while. Um, so we only get that glimpse and then we go back into the cave and the Aang gang is sitting around the campfire, kind of like family meeting style or almost like an intervention. <laughs> And Sokka says, look, Aang, I'm trying to be mature and not immediately shoot down your idea. But it sounds really terrible. And I will says, say, I need to say, as a, as a father, I have basically said those words. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> no, no, I think we've all been there. So Aang says, look, every minute that I'm in that classroom, I'm learning new things about the Fire Nation. I Good point. Have- Good yes. point. Right? It's like both of them, I get it. I, I'm on both of their sides. Like, it is a gamble for Aang to do that. But at the same time, he is learning a lot of insider information that I selfishly think is really interesting. So he's like, look, I'm learning new things about the Fire Nation. I already have a picture of Fire Lord Ozai. And he holds up this, like, striking portrait of the kind of, like, dear leader style of, like, this is our this is our man. And then he's like, and here's one I made of noodles. And he holds up this really poorly done. <laughs> rendition of Fire Lord Ozai in noodles. And Sokka's like, hmm, impressive, I admit, but I still think it's too dangerous. Thank you, John O'Brien, again. <laughs> that That's another just great moment that, that Sokka is like, genuinely like, yeah, I'm, impre- I'm impressed by what you've learned about noodle craft, but... <laughs> and it's so funny when it's like these kids are learning like they're being brainwashed to, and we'll see it in future episodes or future scenes more, but like they're being taught this alternative history. Like it's really intense. Their teacher's a jerk all of the time. And yet like craft time, like it feels so middle school. Um, but uh, so, so Aang is like kind of scheming a little bit and he's like, oh, well, you know what? I guess we'll never figure out about the secret river. Then it goes right through the fire Lord's palace and he shrugs and he knows that Sokka is going to be convinced. Um, so Sokka's like, okay, we can stay a few more days. I love a secret river. Like, let's do this. And Aang runs off and he yells triumphantly, Flamio, Hotman, and leaves Katara and Sokka being like, what? Who is this person? Who is our friend? Who is our son? <laughs> we don't know him. I do, I do love that as we move to this new location too. That Aang, that that we we get to sort of see the different takes on how this is going to work. Because, I mean, Katara was one of the big advocates for the blend in strategy. Sokka wanted to just stay in the cave, and Aang wants to take that blending in. Uh, he wants to really um, just become a Fire Nation person for for a while. Now, I will I will remind you also that Aang needs a firebending master too. Yeah. So like him being part of the fire nation, like what's happening there makes sense. Now, unfortunately, like I said, I don't think there are firebenders at this school. I'm guessing firebending's not a class they take. Right. But it's true. Like 
he is trying to be practical and thinking. I mean, he's the one that has to battle the Fire Lord, like truly in the end, right? Like he knows that that's his destiny. So yeah, it, it's like willing to sit in a classroom of a bunch of 12, 13 year olds if it means that it can get him closer to the secrets of firebending. <laughs> like that seems like a decent trade off. And if he um, has some fun along the way, you know? <laughs> yeah. If he plays some hide and explode, like that could be helpful too. So then we go back to the prison. And Zuko is still talking with Iroh and says, look, you brought this on yourself, you know. We could have been brought back together. You could have been a hero. You have no right to judge me, uncle. I did what I had to do in Bossing Say, and you're a fool for not joining me. Interesting that he jumps to the conclusion that Iroh is judging him when that's really just his own narrative. <laughs> that's really just his own perceptive of perception of himself right like that he was like i think he's living with his guilt iroh doesn't have to say a word and um and zuko is projecting these inner feelings onto him onto his conscience really and iroh doesn't flinch and zuko says you're really not gonna say anything and he abruptly throws a chair and ignites it um incinerating it and zuko yells you're a crazy old man, and if you weren't in jail, you'd be sleeping in a gutter. And Zuko storms out, and Iroh just bows his head slightly, doesn't say a word. This is such an interesting, because we're going to see another version of this scene, another version of Zuko doing this uh, in a little bit. And it's so interesting how Iroh is, in some ways, like being like a good therapist, which is like, I don't need to say anything, you're working stuff out. I mean... This it's funny because this is a conversation. It feels like dialogue, but it's a monologue. There, Iroh yeah. is not talking, but his silence is leading Zuko to process out loud more, which is yeah. really fascinating. And we'll see this yeah. this doubled up and happen again. I think the first time I watched it through, I felt like his silence was self-serving a little bit, like he is angry. And if that was the case, I'm fully on board with <laughs> Iroh being angry at Zuko. But I like the idea that. It could be both, or it could just be in the interest of his nephew, which has always been his top interest. He is going to remain silent and let him work through his own troubles. <laughs> because at some point, it's like, I, Iroh can say anything and everything that Zuko needs to do, but Zuko's not going to do it unless he comes to it on his own, uh, which is very much like the reason why interventions don't generally work, right? It's like, it's not so much about me telling you what you have to do, but you need to get to a point where you need to make those changes on your own. Um, and interesting too, that he would say like, Iroh, you'd be sleeping in a gutter if it, like, if you weren't in jail, essentially, if it weren't for me, or it's like, ah, or Iroh might be serving tea in the upper echelon of bossing say, right? Like who's to say whether he was sleeping in a gutter or in the upper echelon of bossing say, it seems like he would probably be fine with that. Right. That's just it is. I think Iroh would be like, if I was sleeping in a gutter, I would be free. And maybe you would also be free. Yeah. You know, like yep. it's, it's yeah. I, I, you're, you're totally right. You know, I, I had the same thought about Iroh's silence the first time I saw it, but the more I think about what he's doing here, that he's the loudest thing he can say is nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then we're at the school the next morning um, with Aang or Kuzan, and the teacher is instructing the students to recite the Fire Nation oath. And so the oath goes like this. They say, my life I give to my country. With my hands I fight for Fire Lord Ozai and our forefathers before him. 
With my mind, I seek ways to better my country. And with my feet, may our march of civilization continue. Wow. <laughs> yeah. March of civilization is like quite the phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some hardcore propaganda. Yes. And just some 20th century kind of world history <laughs> scary parts of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so the kids are all reciting this oath about like giving literally every part of their body and their mind and their soul to the Fire Nation. And as they're doing that, Aang obviously doesn't know any of the words, so he's stumbling through it. Um, and he's kind of like throwing in blah, blah, blahs and trying to ad lib with the students to keep in unison. Uh, and the kids start to snicker around him until the teacher notices that it seems like he's messing around. And she's angry. Now, yep. one of the things that, that this made me think about um, is if you, we go all the way back to, uh, I think, Return to Omashu, uh, very beginning of season two, when we first meet um, May's family and her little brother, Tom Tom. Oh, yeah. And remember when they're, when they're having this debate about like, yeah, he's cute now, but like he's going to grow up to be this oppressive thing. And it's, so it's fascinating to think about Tom Tom. And now we have kids who are, you know, probably 10 years older than Tom Tom. And we're seeing them. It's like, yep, this is, this is how this happens. Right. Uh, and it's just another version of the brainwashing we see in Bossing say, you know, on a, on a, on a different team, but it is this, this sense of like, what we are doing is right and just and good and that you're moving from being an individual person to part of this grand march of civilization, part of this program. And if that means giving your body, your soul, your life, that's what it means. Yeah. Yes. And that the whole, all of the fire nation, I mean, throughout this season and the last season, we see these displays of, uh, technological prowess and the and the idea that even like your citizens are machines and they are in assembly lines from birth and they are built up and structured in order to function for one thing and that is for the good of the state is like pretty just rough <laughs> it is it is just it can feel i i don't know i feel i feel bad for the students for sure so um the teacher's angry at Aang for messing around during the really important oath, and she decides to give them a pop quiz on the Great March of Civilization. And the first question that she states is, "What year did Fire Lord Sozin battle the I Fire or sorry, the Air Nation Army?" And Aang kind of looks around and looks confused, and he raises his hand and sh and asks her if this is a trick question since the air nomads have never had a formal military. So it's interesting that she doesn't call them the air nomads. She calls them the air nation um, and then refers to some kind of military uh, that they would have when they have either. And then, I mean, and that points to the way that like subtle, really subtle propaganda can work that if you change the name of something and you call them a nation, then you can say, well, this really is nation against nation. Um, there's, and it's not, it doesn't say, if we think about the opening of each avatar, uh, each avatar episode, it talks about uh, Katara says, and then the fire nation attacked. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is saying, well, they battled with each other and they were both armies and they were both nations. And this is just the story of, 
you know, this is just, this is just the story of, of life, right? There are nations who are at odds with each other and it, and just that subtle change of language is part of the way that you sort of justify these things happening. Yeah. But it also, it also means that what Katara says at the beginning of each episode, you need to also read, I mean, she's not an objective point of view either, right? She has a, she has a point of view as well. Now we tend to agree with that point of view, I think, (laughs) but it, but it is interesting to think like that is, that is another way that she is framing. I would love to see that intro as explained by someone from the earth kingdom as explained by someone from the fire nation. We have Katara as a water nation person as, as explained by someone from the, from the air nomads. Like it would be fascinating to be like, what would be the little differences that they would make? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that idea of like history being written by the winners too. And that, of course, they're going to color the air nation a certain way because there's literally just one survivor. There's only one person left. And who are they to try to combat? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no one who's going to say that there was no military or that it was a, it's air nomads, not an air nation. Um, but I also think it's interesting, like thinking about this again as a children's show. I know that I didn't realize historiography was a thing until I was a student of history in undergrad. Like, I didn't realize that history books and and the way that we write and talk about history is colored in perspective and um, in sometimes personal gain or country history or nationalism or whatever. Like that wasn't on my radar. So the fact that that is a huge component of this episode, I love it. Um, So she, uh, he said, so he goes on to kind of contradict his teacher and says, um, Sozin defeated them by ambush, defeated the air nomads by ambush. And all the students start to gasp and they stare at Aang wide-eyed. And the teacher begins to mock him, saying things like, oh, I didn't know that you knew more than our national history books. And um, she said, you know, unless you were there 100 years ago. And Aang, now caught in an uncomfortable position, kind of giggles sheepishly and writes down what was his best guess. He's like, I'm just going to continue writing this quiz. Now, this actually makes me think about this teacher a little bit. And I know you think she's the worst and <laughs> she's not great, but she is also a product of a system, mm. you know, because uh, when she says she's not trying to like put him down by just saying you are wrong. She's saying like, that's not what the book says. The book says right. this, right? So you realize, well, I mean, she's probably, let's say she's uh, 40. Okay. So 28 years ago, she was just one of these kids reading these same books. And it's like, she's just repeating the story. Right. So it's like, she's not, um, she's in a position of authority over these kids, but she's not, it's not like she is hiding some larger truth. She may have never heard the thing that Aang is saying. And it's just like, no, that that's not what the book says. The book says this. And who are you to contradict this book? Who am I to contradict this book? Yes, absolutely. Um, Sympathy for the history teacher. (laughs) No, I have it too, especially thinking about like her compared to, again, Bossing Say, and that the folks on top of Bossing Say are very much controlling the narrative. Um, And here, I'm sure there is that too. We just haven't seen the background and like the the workings of it, the writing of the history books. But yeah, she is somebody who's grown up listening to these same stories. And Aang is not just contradicting her lesson, which on its own would be frustrating as a teacher, (laughs) but he's, he's contradicting everything that she knows to be true. 
Um, and that's frustrating. Now, I will say the uh, the colony slob line, <laughs> uncool to say to your student. Right. Yeah, maybe no. It's <laughs> the first meeting you ever have with him. Um, so then uh, we see a different shot of him in a different class. He's in band practice uh, and all the kids are playing on their instruments. And all of a sudden we hear Aang try to do like a solo on the Zungi horn. Um, and, uh, he's just kind of like messing around on it and he's dancing along to his own music. That is very much not what the rest of the students are playing. Um, which makes me think he probably doesn't know how to read music, but like as an airbender, I bet he's a pretty good, like pretty good at wind instruments, right? Oh yeah. I would bet he'd have some skill in band practice. He just needs to learn how to read music. But anyway, and it is day uh, two for him of school. So <laughs> yeah, right? this is like maybe the second time he's held the Sumi horn. So give him a break. Um, but the band teacher stops them all and points out what he calls the hullabaloo of what Aang's feet are doing, which is dancing to his own Sumi horn beat. And the band teacher's like, what is happening with your feet? Is it a nervous disorder? And <laughs> Aang explains, no, I, I'm just dancing. Like I just kind of felt it in my spirit that I wanted to dance along with the music. And the band teacher explains that dancing is not conducive to a proper learning environment. Young people must have discipline and order. And Aang pushes back a little bit and is like, what about expressing yourself? But because he doesn't want to make a big scene given who he is, why he's there, he just kind of sits down taps his feet along with the beat like the band teacher tells him to do yeah i do like that the band teacher's like well if you must you could like march in place so it, it, it's interesting because again i don't know why i feel like empathy for these teachers like he is trying to say like well you know like i understand the motivation to want to do that but here's like something you can do but it's definitely yes. not that i also you, we need to physically describe the band teacher <laughs> he i mean okay you do it you go he has an enormous head. Like yeah, it's like he has it's a like five a head. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like his head is like this big kind of like like on its side oval. Like we just haven't seen people who look like this in this world, which it this it made me think of Hogwarts. Like oh. we only see two teachers and it's like these two teachers are so both so like well drawn and interesting and and strange in a kind of way and it's like he has landed at a very unique school. <laughs> he reminds me, um, not in character at all, but in appearance of Jack Black in School of Rock. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see that. <laughs> like, if Jack Black had, like, combed his hair a little more and, like, <laughs> tried to be, like, a little more of a nerdy band teacher versus, like, a rock star, I could see them having similar vibes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, so, so, so we have in this scene also introduced... Um, you said they could have called this episode Footloose. We've now introduced that this is a town that has banned dancing. <laughs> and you have the the young boy who's kind of an outsider rolling into town, shaking yep. things up, saying, "You all need to dance. It's for freedom." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, yeah. And so this is where this just becomes. When I heard this line, now I don't think my daughter's even seen Footloose, but I just we turned to each other and we we're just like. Footloose. John O'Brien <laughs> is writing an episode that is Footloose, and it was it's awesome. So if you don't know, Footloose is a mid nineteen eighties like high school 
uh, movie about a small town in, I think, Kansas. Um, That is a, it's a very conservative town and like rock music is not allowed and dancing is not allowed. And I forget why Kevin Bacon moves to town, but he's this kid. I got it. He's a kid from um, Chicago and he moves to this small town. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he brings with him like his music and he's so, so it's about him literally like freeing the minds of these students by teaching them the importance of dancing. Um, you know, and this, and it's just like, this is where Aang is headed here. And, you know, and it, it, it's both silly and funny to be like, John O'Brien just made an eighties movie here, but it also like, it also fits, mm-hmm. you know, because Aang is, Aang is thinking about these, um, is thinking about these, these kids and this culture and saying, well, what could we maybe not open this back up? Yeah. Yeah. And also like with, um, and <laughs> so Footloose, like, clearly it's the same plot there's not a ton of connections in terms of like shots that are similar or whatever like i really you know that one dance that kevin bacon does where he's like screaming and yelling and like running through the construction zone i really wanted there to be a shot for shot remake with ang but there wasn't so it was fine but um there is some elements that are similar like the fact that uh the person that's pushing against kevin bacon's character the most is like a local preacher or like minister and it's it's this person's tradition that that's not what you're going to do and so it's like ang pushing against tradition but also the idea that like dancing is it's definitely a part of religious experience mm-hmm. um, just depends on kind of which religious experience you grow up in but like it's not necessarily going against religion entirely or against the culture of this small town it's just bringing back to life parts of it that have been hidden or or buried deep um but yeah man i love a good kevin bacon reference so then we are outside in the courtyard during maybe like recess or after class and (laughs) ang is walking around and the students are kind of shuffling beside him like giving him weird glances not really going up to him and anji then approaches this outcast version of kuzan and she compliments his dance moves from earlier Uh, but as she does so their conversation is cut short uh, by a flash of fire. So I guess we do see a little bit of firebending. We do. Um, and the jerky man-child boyfriend approaches. Uh, and he calls Aang colony trash. And he says, nobody shows my Anji anything, especially movement. Which is a great oh, great line. Great job, John O'Brien. Um, sometimes Mike and I say that to each other (laughs) and um he so this boyfriend tries to shove ang uh but ang lightly is able to evade him in his air nomad ways and so the boyfriend keeps jabbing and punching at ang but can't touch him and 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 this crowd of students is kind of making a circle around them like a fight um and ang's hands are even behind his back the whole time like ang is real smooth in this episode uh kind of throughout very cool uh so he doesn't need to do anything and this this brute is making a fool of himself on his own and so the kids uh form their circle until the boyfriend then falls right as the headmaster walks up who i think is kind of the local minister in this in this footloose rehash and he sees this like this just man child on the floor and Aang is standing in the center of the circle and the headmaster assumes that Aang has done something wrong and requires him to attend a conference with his parents and Aang is about to protest probably saying look I don't have parents but no one's listening 
So we then go into the headmaster's office and he's sitting below this big portrait of Ozai. Uh, and he says, thank you for coming, Mr. and Mrs. And then we see a shot of who he's looking at. Um, and Kuzan's family is sitting in chairs across from him. And it's Sokka wearing a fake beard, Katara holding a fake pregnant belly bump in front of her, and then Aang sitting between them. And Sokka says, oh, Mr. Fire, Wang Fire. And this is my wife, Sapphire. And Katara goes, yes, um, Sapphire Fire. Nice to meet you. I loved it. I love, I love. <laughs> Actually, Sokka looks good with the beard. I'm not a big yeah. beard fan, but I but it's like Sokka, maybe grow a beard. That looks good. <laughs> yes. And I love that his his names are still so bad, but Katara just has to run with it. Yeah, and this is once again, I feel like this is the third time we've seen Katara's like improv skills. That yes. she's the best at just like rolling with she's she's very yes and. Yes. Sapphire Fire, nice to meet you. <laughs> And so the headmaster then lists off the complaints that are against Aang and includes roughing up his star pupil, to which I wrote, the dummy is the star pupil. Like the, the boyfriend who doesn't want his girlfriend to see movement is like the star pupil. That's not great for you. Well, that's just because they couldn't say the star quarterback because they don't play <laughs> right. football. But that's what it is, right? That's what he's saying is like, this is the person who like, this is the student who runs things here. Yes. You know, he's, he's the star. Kid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Katara puts her hand on her mouth in fake astonishment as the headmaster is going through these grievances. She says, my goodness, that doesn't sound like our Kuzan. And the headmaster says, that's what any mother would say, ma'am. If he acts up one more time, I'll have to send him to reform school. And by that, I mean the coal mines. <laughs> Which is a dark dark thing to say because it does show like there is this this sense of like well how do they maintain their sense and i'm putting this in quotes their sense of civilization which is like we have very tight strictures and very tight rules and if you fall outside of those um we're not going to do a lot to try to like rein you back in like the punishment is swift and harsh sending a child to coal mines not great terrible um but also like very funny the delivery yes. so <laughs> Sokka says don't you worry i'll straighten this boy up something fierce and then Sokka turns to ang in this pretend anger and says young man as soon as we get home you're gonna get the punishment of a lifetime and the headmaster looks entirely pleased placated uh, and the fire family then heads out. I will say this scene makes me love Sokka and Katara a lot too, that they're willing to play this role and they're not, it's and, and we'll see that they're like frustrated by the situation Aang gets into, but I get I remember it's like, they're also not in charge of him. Like, and in yes. fact, he's the, he's the avatar. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, it's very loving that they do this and that they're willing to kind of play scenes like this out. Yeah. And like, Yes, very much. They could have just said, all right, day two didn't go well. Let's go to the next town. But instead, they're like, okay, we'll give it another shot. We'll go to this parent-teacher conference. Um, so you can Yeah, they didn't need day. to go to this. They could have just left. Yeah, yeah. I also think Sokka probably loves a good excuse to put on a costume. Yeah. It seems like it was a little his, self-serving. His character work is really solid. <laughs> yeah, it's grown for sure. So then it's sunset, and we get what is maybe one of my favorite scenes uh, romantic scenes of all time 
we have Zuko and May, and they're sitting close together on a picnic ba- uh, blanket up kind of high, probably on part of that volcanic uh, wall around the city. And they're looking at the sunset and hating its beauty together. And May says, orange is such an awful color. And Zuko goes, you're so beautiful when you hate the world. And May looks into Zuko's eyes and says, I don't hate you. And he answers, I don't hate you too. And then they just start making out. And it is perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Great John O'Brien again. Very funny. (laughs) And it's also like such like a weird, like they nail the awkward, like making out too. It's because it's like, I like these characters. I like them together, but, but I also feel like I I'm good. I don't need to please, please don't. And it reminds you of like uh, the, the couple who like are very PDA, (laughs) although they're not really in public, they're alone, but it's just, Yes, they needed to establish it was a romantic relationship. And John O'Brien, I felt like was like, okay, we're going to do that. But we're going to make it as funny as possible to not be cringy. And like, I think the balance worked out really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so then as they're macking on each other, Azula appears and interrupts them. (laughs) Nothing like your sister interrupting you while you are in a makeout and asks for a moment with Zuko. And Zuko ignores her. He's like, I'm busy and keeps kissing May. And Azula gives May kind of a veiled warning and tells her, why don't you go help Ty Lee with something? Like She's very vague. So untangle her braid, I think is what it was. And May's like, wow, sounds like that's serious. And she stands up and leaves. But as she walks past, there's like a subtle moment where she glances over irritably at Azula as she passes by. Uh, which maybe kind of betrays perhaps May is not as thrilled with Azula these days um, or ever maybe. And Azula then on her own with Zuko says, I hear that you went to visit your uncle Fatso in the prison tower. No, she calls him your uncle, your uncle Fatso. And Zuko says, uh, like, basically he's like, how did you know? And she's like, oh, cause you just told me just now. Uh, and Zuko's like, what do you want? And Z- Azula says, actually nothing. I'm just looking out for you. If people find out you've been to see uncle, they'll think you're plotting with him. Just be careful, dum-dum. It's like, it's inter- what's going on here? Yeah, it's interesting because whenever Azula does something nice for somebody, it's always like, what's the what's the what's motivation? What is? She- but uh, this one I don't know unless she's doing this knowing so if it's like reverse psychology, which is if I tell him not to, this will push him to do it more. I, that's all I can think of because there's because she actually does seem like she's and it might just be she's trying to hold together this myth that they put together and him yeah. him doing this is, a, you know, uh, muddies the waters a little. I don't know. Yeah, she's also like queen of the long con. So I'm not if she is doing something, I'm, I don't know that we would know for <laughs> a couple more episodes. Uh, but she says, uh, or oh, then we go um, to the cave after that. And uh, Mr. Fire, <laughs> Zuk- or Sokka, is telling Aang, like, look, no more school for you, young man. <laughs> Which is very funny. It's sort of like a Simpsons line almost. Like, <laughs> you're so angry that you're going to keep them away from school. Yeah, it's like, right? <laughs> What? <laughs> um, and so then Aang and, uh, is like, look, I just enjoy being a normal kid for once, having fun for once. And he's like, you don't know what it's like, Sokka. You get to be normal all the time. And then Toph kind of laughs at Sokka's wounded pride of being normal. And um, Aang says that 
if we want to make the Fire Nation better. So now the first time it was, let's find a, the secret passageway. Now it's like, I want to make this better for people. Um, so he says, uh, if we want to make the Fire Nation better, they need to show the future generation a little taste of freedom. I loved this. And this is where I think this is not a throwaway episode. Because I don't know where this season's headed, but we talked about in previous seasons, you know, part of this is about building up these allies, right? Mm. And we thought about building up allies in the in the the North Pole, building up allies throughout the Earth Kingdom. And then we're told at the beginning of this season, right, that Hakoda and Bato are collecting some of those allies as they're going, right? Um, and Aang is now sort of saying, like, well, maybe we need to build some allies here right we need to or, or at least think about what happens after the war what happens after the fight with uh with ozai like we need to win hearts and minds yeah you know and it's like i think he's making a really interesting argument and i have a feeling that we're gonna see a little bit of this sort of hearts and minds stuff throughout because as we talked about at the very beginning there is this division between like the military industrial complex of the fire nation and the people of the fire nation yeah so so i think you know ang is the ang is actually if we talk about azula and the long con ang's not it's not a con but he's got a long plan here to be like as avatar this isn't about destroying the fire nation it's about bringing everybody back together yeah. and one of the ways we need to do that is if we can topple the fire Lord, that doesn't mean we topple the fire nation. It means we need to, we need to win them over to this sense of unity. So I actually think there's a huge mission statement embedded here beyond just the get up and dance of it all. Yeah, I think, yes, exactly. Like thinking back even to season one and season two, it seems like Katara and Aang have both been on the side of like hard power isn't enough. Like we need to display soft power too. Like that's really how we can shift hegemonic power is like not just from military and shows of strength, but it's like everything else that you would need to transform. Yeah, for sure. Including dancing. (laughs) So um, Sokka says, what could you possibly do for a country of depraved little fire monsters? And Aang says, I'm going to throw them a secret dance party. And he starts to do a little like dance and, um, cutesy stuff and Sokka's face kind of shrinks and he's like go to your room like he is not on board so the the Sokka's line about the brave little fire monsters was interesting to me because that reminds me of the Tom Tom lesson you know mm-hmm. that that it's like well these these children who seem like just nice people like they are also the the future of the fire nation so this is potentially a struggle for for the future of the fire nation i love it i love this mm-hmm. so then we go to nighttime in the cave and the candles are lit along the walls so even though sokka is not on board again he and katara are being good friends they're being good allies of the avatar and they're like all right we'll throw a dance party <laughs> it's like kind of one of those thankless things that somebody like does for the politician that they're behind right like that you're not getting paid for but you're just gonna do it because you believe in them so um, the candles are lit along the walls. Toph is earthbending stages for the band to stand on. And Aang tells Sokka to think of the dance party as a cultural event celebrating the art of fancy footwork uh, rather than just thinking of it as like any old dance party. 
And Toph then senses that the classmates are approaching from far away. And she warns everybody, you know, stop bending. People are coming. And then Aang apologized to Appa saying, like, you need to go hide. And Appa groans. And he's like, look, I know you got the fanciest foot uh, feet than anybody and six of them. But we need you to hide like you're going to be a giveaway. So <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of that this season of like, where do we just stash Appa away so we can do <laughs> yes. these other things? <laughs> yes. Give him a break, too. I feel like he should enjoy that. So then it's uh, nighttime in the cave. Uh, or sorry. Um, then later in the dance, um, they started out dancing, but really no one is doing it. Right. So the party has begun. Um, the student led band is playing, but all the kids are just kind of standing along the walls and they're nervous. Like this looks like a classic, again, 80s, 90s, like awkward kids dance where nobody really wants to like go into the center and invite someone boys on one side girls on the other yes absolutely and they're all just staring at each other like looking at their shoes like just don't want to be anywhere else than there and Aang kind of goes up to them and is trying to convince them to dance and he's like listen dancing isn't something you think about it's a form of expression that no one can ever take away from you and the kids start wondering, thing, you know, like maybe things are different in the colonies, but they can't dance here uh, in their city. And Aang explains that dancing is a part of the heritage of the Fire Nation and has been for generations. And then he kind of brings them through what I call a dance through the ages, which is like him showing them these different classic Fire Nation moves that he's clearly learned in the past. Um, so some are called the Phoenix Flight, the Camelephant Strut. Um, and as he's going through these different types of traditional dances, the students are cheering for Aang. And some of the girls even, like, kind of giggle and flirt with him. So he's killing it on the dance floor. And Toph and Katara are sitting at a nearby table, sipping their drinks, which looked, it looks like they were in a bar setting. Like, it was great. And Toph would be that role of, like, the the cool friend that's, like, sitting off to the side of the table, throwing back drinks while everyone else is dancing. Right. And she's like, who knew Twinkle Toes could dance? Um, so she throws back another drink. And um, then we go to Zuko. So Zuko is visiting Iroh again at the prison tower and offering him some food that he says, you know, you're not going to like it, but at least it, it beats prison food. And then he starts to talk to his uncle again, trying to get some advice. And he says, I admit it. I have everything I always wanted, but it's not at all how I thought it would be. Truth is, I need your advice. I think the Avatar is still alive. I know he's out there. I'm losing my mind. Please, Uncle, I'm so confused and I need your help. And Iroh still sits facing the back wall in the dark and doesn't say a word. And the, so Zuko starts yelling and says, forget it. I'll solve this myself. Waste away in here for all I care. And as Zuko slams the door on his way out of the cell, Iroh, we see tears streaming down Iroh's eyes. Yeah, and so this is this is this is what I was talking about. Where, where, without saying anything, he's actually leading Zuko through all of these. Like now, he's like trying to come to Iroh for approval. He almost seems desperate to be like. I mean, uh, it's it's heartbreaking. The line of sort of I have everything I've ever wanted, but it's not what I thought. Yeah. You know, like uh, it's it it makes me feel for Zuko again, which I haven't in a while. You know, and yeah, and I think it. It also is more evidence to the fact that Iroh's silence isn't self-serving. Like, I think the one thing he wants to do is comfort 
his nephew and yet he can't and like that's why the tears are coming like <laughs> he knows he has to be quiet and, and let Zuko figure it out on his own right um, so then we go back to the dance party and Aang grabs Anji's hand and ushers her into the middle and is kind of teaching her a dance that he had learned from Ba Sing Se. Uh, so we have some like sharing of cultural dances and experiences between Earth Kingdom and Fire Nation. And Sokka says, wow, like they look pretty good together to Katara. And Katara turns away and she's like, eh, if, if that's what you like, <laughs> trying to ignore um, what's going on with Aang. And the kids then begin to join Aang and Anji for the Bossing Say dance. And then they they all start freestyling. And we get some, some shots of kids just like fully letting loose. Uh, and others awkwardly kind of shuffling around, tapping their foot, nodding their head like they've never danced. And they're not really probably going to start tonight. I love the dances. I love all the different <laughs> dances and how, how it really is like like the dam breaks and they just get into it more and more. And they're sort of realizing that they're just moved by the music to dance. I love it. Yes, it's like the Charles Schultz Peanuts dance moves where it's like everyone's doing their own thing and it's all like pretty ridiculous. Uh, but it, it makes you feel good that they can actually have a little freedom, like as cheesy as it sounds. It's funny you say that because I've actually felt like that was a missed visual opportunity. Like, why did they not have one shot of somebody actually doing those dances like that would have been really well, they could have done yes. it in the background and it would have been great <laughs> we could have momo as snoopy <laughs> it'd be so cute so um then ang beckons katara for a dance and she's really shy at first and kind of trying to ignore him um she's like well my my shoes aren't the right kind for dancing but ang refuses to listen and he offers her his hand and so they dance together and soon the eyes of everyone are on them. And he does like this little whisper. And then from that small whisper in her ear, they're able to do this long choreographed dance, which is like, okay, <laughs> sure. But a lot of their dance moves mirror their bending moves too. So that's like a note people have made on Avatar Wiki and other places. It's like, it looks like they are water bending or air bending uh, when they're doing their dances. So it's actually like comes pretty natural to them. And we... Um, and so Katara starts to seem embarrassed because people are looking at her and Aang smoothly tells her, don't worry about them. It's just you and me right now. Genuinely like romantic moment. Yeah, truly. It's almost like there's a scene. It, have you seen the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice? No. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I know you're not a big Jane Austen fan, but there's the scene in Pride and Prejudice when they're all dancing and like the whole group is dancing together at Pemberley Hall or something. And uh, th the two of them are dancing and all of a sudden we see them just in a room, the two of them, and like everyone else disappears. And it's to be like, oh, they're just focusing on each other. Um, and that's what this reminded me of. So it is like, I think it's really romantic. And Katara blushes, um, and then they continue kind of dancing back and forth in a circle and looking at only each other, focusing just on each other. They throw in some cartwheels, bends, flips, like really good stuff. Um, and then outside, the crappy boyfriend uh, brings the headmaster to the cave and shows him the dance party. What a narc. 
I know he's the worst. <laughs> like I was hating on the teacher, but this kid is way worse than anyone else. Also, because legit, he's a man child. And we see the chubby, uh, a chubby boy who's like at first really apprehensive, and now he's finally getting into the dance, and he's like, "My inhibitions just disappeared." <laughs> this is another like '80s movie trope that you get like the little side characters who aren't like fully fled, fully like fleshed out characters, but like they have this little arc because this kid's been in all of these different scenes. I love him. I mean, this is this. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think like who would be the the '80s actor who would play these parts i can't even because like it's they're not people who tend to be like famous enough to get to you know that you know who they are but they're like in all of these movies yeah for sure like i'm rooting for him like i don't even he doesn't even have a name i don't think but i'm like oh yes you dance like it makes me really happy and um so he's his inhibitions have just disappeared but he doesn't really have long to celebrate since the headmaster and the school guards who are like ripped enter into the cave, point at Aang and say, he's the one we want, the boy with the headband. And then Aang runs into the crowd of kids and the guards begin to race after him, pushing the kids aside. And they keep thinking that they find Aang because they see a child with a headband, but as they turn the kid around, they realize it's not Aang. And so the kids, like you were saying before, they're all in on the escape plan. And they're helping Aang out by fooling the headmaster by tying these headbands around their heads, just like Aang would do. And we get this eerie moment when the headmaster and the guards stand in the middle of the dance floor. And they're surrounded by these, like, encroaching Fire Nation kids staring at them. And uh, we just, like, pan away. (laughs) The guards, like, occasionally move their feet to the music playing. and, And the headmaster's like, stop it, stop it. Like, don't dance with them. So this is, I assume, a, a reference to a very, very famous movie scene um, from the late 50s, early 60s. Have you ever seen the movie Spartacus? No, I haven't. Okay, very famous scene in the movie Spartacus. It's after this, um, Spartacus leads this, this is in ancient Rome, leads this slave rebellion. And the, you know, the rebellion is put down and there's, you know, a few of the slaves remaining, including Spartacus or a few, there's a, there's a bunch of them remaining and the Romans kind of round them up. And in the scene, the uh, Roman leader says that the emperor has granted clemency to everyone here. So you're, you're because so, technically they're supposed to be crucified, but he says, we're not going to kill you. You get to go back to slavery, but only on the condition that you turn in Spartacus, who the guy who led this, because that's really what they want to do. And instead of them turning, so, so in the scene, Spartacus starts to stand up because he's going to say like, obviously take me because I don't want these other people to die. And as he starts to stand up, somebody else stands up and says, I am Spartacus. And then somebody else stands up. And so by the end, everyone is standing yelling, I am Spartacus. So they can't tell who the person is. This is a version of that, right? They all put headbands on. So it's like, you're looking for the kid with the headband we're all the kid with the headband you can't punish all of like so it, it like it is this this uh this this really great uh reference to it's a classic movie scene um and it it it, it, and it fits perfectly into this but it's also this this you know if we're thinking about this as like a story about rebellion against this authoritative regime or system right that's what spartacus is right? it's about a slave uprising yeah oh i love it yeah, yes. And then uh, by the end, they're all like, he, like, he's one of us, truly. Like, they have adopted him into uh, into their identity. Um, 
And so then Aang is, uh, he runs into the crowd of kids. Um, and he kind of like runs then to the back of the cave and turns to bow at one of the nearest students to them as a thank you of like, you helped me escape, acknowledging uh, that they put headbands on their head. And the boy winks at him. And then um, Toph, or maybe Aang even, uh, earth bends to block off the cave. And the kid who winks like sees that and is like, oh my God, like did they just earth bend? So like gave away a little bit, but. I love that too, because it, it is also pointing to like, uh, they're leaving some tracks. And it's like, okay, well, that moment between Aang and this kid and that kid is like, that's where we get that building an alliance to the mm. point where it's like, I'm actually going to betray my identity just a little bit to say like, things are not what they seem. We are not who we seem, but, but look, look what we've done for you. Yeah. You know, that, that's like, part of that hearts and minds thing. Yeah. They like built the common ground first and then they're like, ah, but we're different. Yeah, for sure. So then uh, we see the gang flying on Appa away from the cave and Toph says, way to go, dancy pants. And this is like a, a weirdly uniquely sentimental moment for Toph. She goes, I think you really did help those kids. You taught them to be free. And this, I think, means a lot coming from Toph because the same thing happened to her too. Like she would have been living that dual life at home, uh, being ignored by her parents on the best of terms, and then uh, running off for her little bit of freedom uh, working with the the jocks, <laughs> the wrestling bros, or whatever you want to call them, uh, but Aang offered her freedom in the, in terms of traveling and seeing the world, and also helping for this uh, using her skill um, that she hadn't been able to before. And Aang says, "I don't know. It was just a dance party. That's all." And Guitar said, "Well, that was one. That was some dance party." Aang and she kisses him on the cheek, and he blushes immediately. And Sokka does a slow clap. I think maybe the first slow clap of the series and says, Flamio, sir, Flamio. Which, then, which the slow clap is also like a, an, like a, a high school movie <laughs> move, you know, it's great. Yeah. The cool kid does the slow clap. Yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of digging at somebody, but also acknowledging a good job. Um, so then outside at night, we're, kind of around, I think, the prison tower. It seems kind of a similar area. And we see a, a hooded Zuko uh, meeting up with a man, a large framed person. And we only really see his armored legs, like these big muscular calves approach. And uh, Zuko says, I've heard about you. They say you're good at what you do and even better at keeping secrets. The Avatar is alive. I want you to find him and end him. Whoa. I like that, just the language of that is is uh, is very dark. Remember, kid show. <laughs> yes, uh, he hires a hitman. Like that is, yes. that is the end of this. And the camera turns to the man's face, and we get a close-up shot of a bald head. Um, and there's a marking on the center of the forehead, and it looks like a sideways red eye with three large stripes passing behind it, almost like a scar. Um, and it is right in the center, kind of where the third eye is said to be located, which mm -hmm. gives you this like invisible special insight on the environment and people around you. Um, and it's also interesting that this is an episode called The Headband, 
Uh, it's Aang covering up this thing that's on his forehead that gives him away. And now at the end, we have somebody tracking him down with a similar type of marking in a similar place, at least, um, on the forehead. And that's where we end with a hitman. <laughs> wow. It's, it's such a good ending because it, and they, they have a tendency to do this, that at the end, they sort of open the world up to like, and here's this other thing. And this is, and, and, you know, I know enough about Avatar to know, you know what I bet this next episode's not going to be about? That guy. That guy's yeah. not going to show up probably for a while. And then all of a sudden he will. And we'll be like, oh yeah. Remember when Zuko hired that guy? So I, I, I I, I love that they do this, but I know their tricks enough to know, like, like we're going to have to wait on this guy. But when he does show up, it's going to be good. <laughs> I can't. We, we also introduce another villain character then, because we kind of need that. Um, we need a villain who knows that Aang is alive, mm-hmm. you know, yes. because, because the Azula lot of the fire doesn't. nation doesn't. Yeah. Although yeah, she Azu- kind of seems like she does. Right, I think she assumes that he is, but she can't make that known yet. Yep, yep, um, absolutely. Yeah. So as I'm thinking about kind of questions, observations, things that jump out at me, um, obviously, who is the who is the assassin at the end? Like, where's yeah. that going? Um, we talked a little bit about Iroh's arc. Kind of mm-hmm. what's that going to be? Who's going to res- rescue him? Um, you know, I think that that's a big one. And then... I also sort of wonder like how far does Zuko have to fall? They spent so much of season two transforming him from the villain to this, you know, uh, free agent gunslinger. (laughs) And you sort of think you're going in one direction. And then you have this moment at the end. And it's, it's a brilliant move at the end of season two to bring in Azula and kind of win him back over to start this season with him in the palace, having everything he's ever wanted, but it not being what he, what he expects. So, but it's just like, like how much further does he need to fall? Cause this is, again, I'm, it's, it's no great trick to predict things in a kid show, but like there's a Zuko redemption story happening. Like this is, this is the shape of story. Like, you know, that's going to happen, but like how much further how much further down does he go before that arc turns and it turns again? Um, And I feel like there's probably a ways to go. Yeah. It's also interesting because we do get a lot more of the family dynamics this season, at least so far we've had a lot of Azula Zuko interactions and uh, thinking about Iroh. And I, I truly don't know if this is a thing that happens in season three, but I'm like, Iroh is so close to his brother right now, physically, like geographically very close. And it makes me curious if there's going to be some kind of interaction between the two of them and what that would look like, too. Because it's like it's not enough that Zuko just like sold over his uncle, but it's like he sold him over to the person who stole the throne from him. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, there's just it's like kind of the worst thing that you could ever do. Um, and so I wonder if there's going to be like a confrontation or um, or if. Maybe it's more Fire Lord Ozai to just ignore that his brother's there at all. Like, just to pretend like he doesn't even have one. Similar to, like, how Azula won't even call him her uncle. It's Zuko's uncle. Mm-hmm. I have a couple other little little questions or thoughts. Um, thinking about, you know, Aang planning for the post-war world uh, makes me wonder, with this show, how much time will we have after the... Because, okay, I'm 
presuming we're going to see the defeat of the fire Lord. How much do we see after that? Like how much is that the very end or how much do Mm. we kind of like um, the return of the King, how you have the fall of Sauron. And then it's like, and there's still like 45 minutes to an hour left of this movie because we we're going to play some of these other things out. So I, I I wonder about that. And I, like I said, we also know that there is, um, there are other shows in this world. So maybe they don't show us much, but maybe we learn about answers to those questions in legends of Korra, things like that, that, that I don't know. Um, I'm wondering as we think about this season, uh, if this plan of blending in will work Mm. of like, we're going to be engaging with the fire, uh, with the fire nation people and culture, but how much do they, end up showing oh wait i you know do they end up showing who they really are that they really are outsiders like it's a it is a risky tactic i mean Sokka's plan in some ways makes a little bit more sense um you know in terms of that uh and then will we learn anything more about kuzan i'm wondering because mm. that seems to be ang's connection to the fire nation and we don't get a flashback of him we don't see anything of him we just hear um, Aang mentioned him, but but I don't know if we'll see any more. Yeah, yes, and how maybe that would connect to a fire master teacher relationship. Oh, sure, lot, right, sure. Like, potentially, <laughs> I, I still know. think I still think it's Iroh, right? I still think that's part of the prison <laughs> break is to get Aang a, a firebending master, but I don't know. Um, do you have any other questions or observations? Because I want to close on a question that I posed to you leading into this but do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get to that no 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 i'm curious what's your question okay so this is as we said is clearly just a version of footloose um so i'm curious what other in my case 80s and in your case if you want to do 90s pieces of intellectual property or movies would you like to see remade in the avatar world particularly like kids movies high school movies that you did you that if we're because we like to talk about spinoffs things like this so i have two of them but i'm curious if you did you come up with any oh can you give me one yeah give me, so, give me one of yours so like the the most classic john hughes 80s high school movie is the breakfast club uh-huh. right so yes. i was thinking like okay when we just watched this this past weekend so you have the five main characters in the breakfast club and it made me it was fun to think about who would those characters be if you were casting them in the um in the avatar world so these are people from different backgrounds different walks of life who you know don't have anything to really tie them together but you know they come to uh, come to become friends and realize things about themselves and have to struggle with that, you know, over the course of a Saturday in detention. If you haven't seen breakfast mm. club, that's roughly what it's about. Have you seen breakfast club? Yes, I have. Okay. Um, so I'm going to just present the character, the character breakfast club character. I have who I think should play them. And I will say I tended to, ch- I tried to lean not too heavily on our like main, main, main cast characters. Cause there's kind of like five main characters you could just drop in there and say, that's it. So I tried to not do that. Um, I did. I have a couple of them, but not, not entirely. So um, first off you have John Bender, who's like the rebel, uh, the rebel character. Do you have a thought on who you would put there? I mean, Zuko. Okay. That's my wife said that too. And and that was one where I think, yeah, Zuko, because because John Bender has father issues. Like it's, it's perfect, but I didn't, but I did, but I was like, that's great, but we have an opportunity to go a different direction here and okay. not. Um, so, so I said, 
Zuko would be great, but Jet would also be great as John. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he's got a he also has parental issues and abandonment issues, psychologically damaged, violent. Like I love Jet as Bender. I yes. I was gonna also say Toph, but I don't know that that would go that far. Toph yeah. is too Toph is too, too I may have I may have nice. something else for Toph. So oh, okay, okay. Uh and then we have Claire who's like who's the Molly Ringwald character, kind of the uh the prom queen princess. <laughs> Uh, Ua? Yep, obviously, right. We have a literal <laughs> princess. Um, I, I think I think Ua is great there. I would love to see the Ua Jet dynamic. Would be awesome. Yeah, true. Because he would think that he could like totally win her over, but she would definitely push away from that. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the Emilio Estevez character Andy, like who's the the jock wrestler. Yeah. Tough. Uh, I thought Sokka because 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 like there's a lot of like because Andy's like one of those characters that the more you get to know him you're like oh like there is more to him than just like the kind of meathead jock but Sokka at the beginning you feel one way sort of changes over time Uh, we have we have the Anthony Michael Hall character Brian who's the nerd (laughs) I don't know who would the nerd be I thought Teo Teo works for this oh yeah I wasn't even thinking of Teo yeah, yeah. I like these like season one characters coming out. <laughs> and then we have the basket case Allison, the Ali Sheedy character, who's just sort of like off in her own little world, but then like mm. gets transformed, and that can be problematic if we want to think about that. This is where I put Toph. Okay, I see it. Yeah, because yeah. like, because she's somebody who like doesn't want to interact with other people, but then eventually like you eventually get to know who she is. I would definitely watch that movie if they were, if they were put in detention and like had to get to had to work things out, had to get to know each other. I I think it would be awesome. I, um, I'm trying to think of, so the one movie I came up with and okay. Full disclosure. I don't know a ton of eighties movies. Sure. So I said like, I mean, you know the movies I watched in the 90s were like yeah. for six-year-olds. <laughs> right, right. That's true. But the one that I thought of was The Goonies. I feel oh. like a, a good like treasure hunt one yes. would be real fun. Because The Goonies is like the kid version of like, um, um, oh my goodness, what's it called? Uh, the the philosopher, or the historian. Indiana gets- Jones. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> I just yeah, watched yeah, that yesterday. <laughs> but yes, like taking that, making it kids, and uh, there's enough characters where it's like you could fill it out pretty well. I think. oh yeah yeah um, Be- yeah Teo works works great as the kid with the inventions. Like that's a yeah that's a perfect one. Uh, I almost want to take the chubby kid from this episode and put him in as one of the Goonies, although we don't really know enough about him, but he's kind of perfect. No, that's what I was going to say when we were talking about him earlier. I was like, he reminds me of a Goonies kid, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like one that you're rooting for and you're like, you're going to get your first kiss or something. And like they do. And it's huge. Yeah. Oh, that's that. Uh, that is great. I, I would, def- you know, and in some ways, and I will say the other, the other movie I came up with, I basically decided it actually is just a version of this show in a weird sort of way. So like, yeah, I feel like, like, like I, we you could easily build out Goonies. Um, I'm trying to think who like the main, the, 
you know, the, the main, um, Sean Astin character would be like, who would, Oh my God. um, And Sean Astin's in it. So it's like, this is prime. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Oh, I, I kind of, I kind of love it. Yeah. So you should email us channel 300 at gmail.com and cast the, the movie, the Goonies with this. I will say the other movie that I came up with and I said, Oh, this show is just, it's actually too easy that it's not that interesting was Ferris Bueller's day off. Oh yeah. And I realized okay. actually Ang is Ferris. Katara is, um, is Sloan and Sokka is Cameron. And it's just like, it just is right. Like this show is Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> it kind of works perfectly. That is such a good one. Yes, I agree. Also, like with this episode, the Footloose episode, like in a school, like kind of breaking school rules, it feels perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, yeah, this, this, this just made me think of all the directions that they could go. But I would like, I would pay real American money to watch the Breakfast Club episode. I actually would want it oh. to be a two-parter, maybe just feature-length film. Again you know uh avatar studios you guys are looking for content just make the breakfast club in this world (laughs) i would love it so much and and don't worry about not having like main 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 characters in it give us give us people that we only know tangentially yes agreed and i know that i know that Sokka has Sokka loves ua but like or but i would love a jet ua interplay like that is you can't buy screen chemistry like that like again they've never been in a scene together but i know that chemistry would be amazing it would be so good yes agreed i want this <laughs> <laughs> all right annie uh this has been a very long episode a very good episode um thank you so much for spending the time uh talking through uh through this with me we are out of time but we will be back next week to talk about book three fire chapter three the painted lady 